Hey, welcome to our online sermons at Coastal Community Church. So glad that uh, you're checking these sermons out on our internet and, and on our website. And so I want to welcome you. And, and I do want to encourage you that these sermons, online sermons, should be a supplement to your spiritual growth. But one of the things that we're big believers in at Coastal Community Church and I uh, want to encourage you is to find a home church uh, where you can not only grow in teaching, but also grow in community with other believers. So if you don't have a home church near you and you live in the Hampton Roads area, we'd love to invite you to Coastal Community Church. We just recently moved uh, to 101 Village Avenue. We have two services, uh, 915 and 11, and we'd love for you to check out one of our services here in the community. Over the summer, uh, a lot of changes going on at Coastal Community Church. We're changing locations, and and part of what we wanted to focus on in the summer as we move into our new location is to remind us of the one thing that doesn't change and won't change at Coastal, and that's that we wanted to lift up the person and the work of God's Son, Jesus Christ. So Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, the letter of Hebrews is the perfect letter to remind us that Jesus is greater than anything we could imagine. And so I hope you'll join us and enjoy this sermon called Greater Than. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13. We've been spending the last several weeks in Hebrews chapter 13, and over the next two weeks we're going to conclude it. Uh, If you don't own a Bible, there should be one somewhere around you underneath the chair. Uh, Do us a favor, take that with you. That's uh, our gift to you. And uh, We pray that it blesses you, but Hebrews chapter 13, we're going to look specifically at verses 10 through 16 this morning. And this is the word of the Lord. It says, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city but we seek the city that is to come. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word We thank you that it's constant, it never changes, and the reason for that is, is because you never change. You're the same yesterday, you're the same today, you're the same forever. And Lord, I thank you for this study that you've allowed us to do over the course of this summer in the book of Hebrews. And God, I pray that this church would be conformed more into the image of your son, Jesus Christ, because of it. And Lord, I thank you for this morning that we have together to read your word that's living and active. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would give us understanding. Your Holy Spirit would give us humility. And Lord, when we leave here, we will leave here this morning cherishing you more. And I pray this in the only name that saves, Jesus Christ. Amen. Our Hebrew study is 
is coming to a head in this passage, and appropriately so as we conclude our study in the book of Hebrews over the next two weeks. And uh, we've identified the recipients of this letter as, as, as a mixture between Jewish believers and also Jewish non-believers who, who acknowledge the tenets of Christianity. And in other words, they give lip service so long as they're not, they're not persecuted too much for it. In other words, there, there are Jewish Christians in this audience, and then there are Jewish non-Christians who acknowledge Christ, but who have never been truly converted by this precious gospel, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And if you, you, you don't understand the recipients of, of the, the letter, or, or it could have been a sermon of the book of Hebrews, it's difficult for you to understand the, the book as a whole. Okay, we, we, we've come to understand in our study that, that, that some, some in this, this particular Hebraic audience, they're, they're being tempted to abandon their profession in Christ. And, and if they do, they'll show that they were never captivated by the gospel to begin with, right? John 10 settles that for us, eternal security. And the, the, the Hebraic author, he brings this sermon or letter to this concluding moment where he calls this audience to, to, to once and for all abandon the old covenant way of life. In other words, abandon Judaism. And the, 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 the church at this point is, is living in this, this unique period in, in, in time, okay? The, the, uh, the, the, the old age is passing away, which is, which is Judaism, okay? And, and, and the, the, age is, uh, the, the, the age to come, which is the new covenant age, the, the, uh, the Jesus is king age is spreading, okay? So, so Jesus has ushered in the age to come through his life, his death, and his resurrection. And the old age, which is Judaism, is passing away. And there's about a 40-year a window here where the, uh, the, the two ages crossed, and, and this creates this, this natural tension between Judaism, the, the, the age that's passing away, and the way, all right? The book of Acts describes Christianity as the way, okay? Christianity, which, and Christianity should have, should have been the, the, the logical conclusion of Judaism if if only the non-Messianic Jews would have understood that Christ is the promised Messiah and the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies, okay? So, so the call to abandon Judaism, which is what the author of Hebrews is, is aiming to do for these people, once and for all, draw a line in the sand, abandon Judaism. This, this, um, this isn't shocking to us as a, a 21st century audience, right? But, but think of what the, the author of Hebrews is asking the recipients of this letter to do. He's saying, forsake the way of life that you've known and that your fathers have known and that your grandfathers have known and so on and so forth because Christ is the long-awaited Messiah that they've hoped for and that you've hoped for. And some of the people that are hearing this and are receiving this letter, they're saying, they're probably thinking to themselves, is is Jesus the son of Mary and Joseph from Nazareth? Is, is he really the long-awaited Messiah? The conservative religious leaders of the day didn't think so, right? So, so they had him killed for blasphemy. Right? Embracing Christianity and abandoning, abandoning Judaism would cost them. 
It would cost the Jewish believers everything familiar to them, their friends, their family, the the places that they enjoyed hanging out at, their places of worship. It could have cost them their jobs. It could have affected them financially. It would tarnish their reputation and, and, and negatively affect their freedom. Acceptance into the broader community would become a thing of the past. It, it, would, it would prevent them from being understood. It would prevent them from being welcomed. It would prevent them from being empathized with. It would make them strangers in, in, in a very, very familiar land. Our brothers and sisters all throughout the world experience this on a daily basis. And I think in some shape, form, or fashion, America is going to begin to experience this in, in, in some way or another. And I hope that you see why it's profitable for us to, to look in the Word of God and to consider the Word of God and to apply the Word of God to our lives. I was a stranger in a familiar land recently. I had the, the opportunity to, to go to this conference uh, with a friend of mine, and, and, and most of the people at this conference, they were English and uh, there was a break in the lectures one night, and most of the people at the conference uh, decided to uh, compete in a soccer match. And if you, you want to know how nerdy this conference was that I was at, the two teams that were facing each other were the Edwards and the Whitfields. And if you got that, then you're as much of a nerd as I am. But I felt out of place because I don't know anything about soccer. I'm from South Georgia. That's not even a they don't even give you the option to play soccer in South Georgia. And um, I, I don't get anything about soccer. And I, for the life of me, can't understand why grown men will chase down a ball as fast as they can for three hours. Like you could go buy your own at Walmart. I don't get, why do you have to have that one? I don't get the rules. I don't get any of it. And, and, and I felt a little out of place because I had to sit in the bleachers with the, the elderly folks that were physically incapable of playing along. And, yeah. and I'm poking fun a little bit and by no means comparing that to, to what the, the, the first century Jewish audience is going through with, with feeling uncomfortable. But, but um, I, I do remember how easy it is. Uh, I remember thinking, man, it's really easy to feel uncomfortable very quickly. Right? I, I couldn't wait for that soccer match to be over. I didn't, I didn't want to stick out, and I assumed everybody was curious as to why the, the healthy 30-year-old kid wasn't kicking around a, a ball while colliding with other grown men on a field of grass full of potholes. And, but the point is, is that, that nobody, likes to, nobody likes to feel uncomfortable, right? And the, the Jewish believers were f- facing a, a feeling of being uncomfortable to the point of persecution, right? So it goes way, way far beyond just feeling uncomfortable. They're facing persecution in a way that, that we can't even imagine yet as American Christians. And I don't want to make it sound all gloomy, though. Although the, the Jewish audience faced social ostracism, they did have this. They had eyewitness accounts to the life, ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. Christ's life was carefully observed by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They knew that the life of Christ fulfilled the words of the prophets and the testimony of John the Baptist. 
They knew that the, 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 the apostles were absolutely convinced that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah, so much so that they were willing to be martyred for that confession. They also had the miracles, and they had the instruction of the apostles, and they had the promised Holy Spirit deposited in them when they repented and believed the gospel. And this was offered freely to them. If you're taking notes this morning, I'd have you write down this statement. The gospel would cost them everything. The gospel would cost them nothing. The gospel would cost them everything. The gospel would cost them nothing. What does this mean? The Hebraic author is is having to convince some of the Jews that are professing Christ to not abandon their profession of Christ. Why did the, the, the author of Hebrews had, why did he have to do this? Why did this letter have to be written? Or why did this sermon have to be given? Because in the minds of non-believing Jews, okay, and I I want you to think broad audience here, right? There's a broad audience in this room this morning. Some of you are Christians. Some of you are not Christians. I don't know who's who, but I'm, I'm operating on the assumption that we come together as a church body to sing the gospel back to God, to remind each other of the gospel, and to hear the gospel preached through the living word of God. So I'm treating you as believers, all of you in this room. And the Hebraic author is doing the same thing in this letter here, okay? But he's trying uh, to, in, in, in the minds of non-believing Jews who profess Christ, the loss in their mind was greater than the gain. They're thinking about all the stuff they're gonna lose because of, of, of them abandoning Judaism and embracing Christianity. Therefore, they're being tempted to forsake Christianity, this this, this faith that they've given lip service to and embrace Judaism again for the comforts and the pleasure and the prosperity that would come to them if they gave in to the pressure. And what I wanna do is compare that with someone whose heart has been, has been taken captive by the gospel. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Philippians chapter three. Philippians chapter three, verses three through 11 This is the Apostle Paul here, and he says this, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the, if you have your Bibles and you don't mind underlining, this would be a great piece to underline. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as what? Rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. 
that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. All right, the apostle Paul was, he was circumcised. He was a Jew. He was from the prestigious tribe of Benjamin. He was a Pharisee and he strictly and outwardly kept the law. And he was a faithful persecutor of the church, which was a good thing in the eyes of the Pharisees. Right? Paul had respect. Paul had power. And I'm pretty sure that Paul had some money. Christ saved Paul. Christ saved Paul. And this leads Paul to, to call all of his stuff and all of his accomplishments rubbish. And I would tell you what that word is in the Greek, but it's pretty R-rated. But Paul's saying that the gospel cost me everything. The gospel cost me nothing. Christ is superior. Christ is better. Right? Paul counted all things as rubbish. And I have this, this picture when he's writing this or when he's communicating this to, to the, 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 the Philippian church. He's saying, I count all things as rubbish for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He's giving them this visual of this is so much better than this. It doesn't even compare. How could you possibly apply your mind in a way where you think that you're losing things? You're gaining Christ, right? This is the message that the Hebraic author is communicating to the, to the Jewish audience. It, that, 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 and they're so focused on what they're going to lose that they're not giving any attention to the surpassing value of Christ Jesus, our Lord, right? This is the, the big picture message of the verses that we're looking at this morning, Okay. And so now I want, I want to show you by diving specifically into our text, how does the Hebraic author encourage them to value Christ more? How does he do this specifically for us? The first thing that we see the author of Hebrews communicate is that the message of the gospel is narrow. The message of the gospel is narrow. And by narrow, I mean that it's exclusive. The message of the gospel exclusive. Verse 10 settles this for us. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. We have an altar which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. All right, if we're considering this volatile environment created by the non-Messianic Jews, that this verse seems to be answering an objection that, that Christians have no altar of atonement, right? The Hebraic author is, is answering this Jewish rebuttal of how do you atone for sins if you're not making sacrifices the way that our fathers did, our grandfathers did, so on and so forth. The Hebraic author is answering that objection and saying that, that Scripture argues otherwise and it speaks to the exclusivity of the altar. The, the altar is a place of sacrifice and the, the author of Hebrews, he's using Jewish imagery, okay, because of his audience, to communicate the centrality of the gospel. Right? Jesus Christ, the Messiah, was slain on the altar. That's what he's saying right here. And every Old Testament sacrifice points to that ultimate sacrifice. 
What about the phrase, serve the tent? What does that mean in this, in this verse? Those who, who serve the tent, according to, to verse 10 here, have no right to eat. Right? Because of the, the book of Hebrews is rooted so much in the Levitical priesthood, which is why Pastor Sean has, has taught us that we need to understand the book of Leviticus in order to understand the book of Hebrews. Uh, I believe that it's referring to the tent of meeting that was used in Leviticus 1. It was used in Exodus 29. And for time's sake, I'm not going to read that passage, but no. It was an actual location that God's people went to meet with him. The tabernacle as well was referred to the tent of the Lord, according to Exodus 28, 1 Kings 1, 1 Kings 2, 1 Chronicles 9. Those committed to the, the age that's passing away, the Judaic age, right, had to meet with God in a specific location. When Christ died, the temple of the curtain was torn in two from the top to the bottom, according to Mark chapter 15, right? And that signified that God's people no longer have to worship him at a tent, but they can worship him anywhere and at any time because Christ is our great high priest, right? This is, this is also the, the significance behind the destruction of the temple in AD 70, which I think put an end to the Judaic age once and for all. But the point is, is that Jesus alone was sacrificed on the altar once and for all. And it's only through him that we can be reconciled to God and we can worship God. The message of the gospel is narrow. And I'm glad for it. I'm glad for it. Braden and I have a son. And one thing I've learned is that there are a million opinions about what will and won't kill your child. <clears throat> And then there's even more resources out there uh, that, that tell you about what will and won't kill your child. And then on top of that, they disagree about what will and won't kill your child based off of the decade that you raise your child. So prior to 94, it was wrong to let them sleep on their back because they drown in their throw up. Once 94 came, something changed, and then they can't sleep on their stomach because they'll suffocate. So we hang him upside down. <laughs> I don't, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. The, right? there's, there's, a million, there's a million things out there to, to try to instruct you on the best way to raise your child if you love them. I'm so glad that that's not so with the gospel, amen? Right? There's one way with the gospel. There's not a million ways to make you right with God. There's no formula to make you right with God. There's no 12-step program to make you right with God. There's one book that's been written, and no matter what, it doesn't change. It's never changed, ever. Only Christ's person and work will make you right with God. So next we see, if you're taking notes, the suffering of Christ sanctified Christians once and for all. The suffering of Christ sanctified Christians once and for all. Verses 11 and 12. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Sanctify means to, to make holy or, or to consecrate. Christ accomplished what God the Father decreed 
to do in eternity past. Acts chapter 2. We see this sermon that Peter's given. And he says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, losing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. The, the, the Hebraic author knew all along that, that, that God's plan was to, 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 to use the Old Testament sacrificial system to point to Jesus Christ. Right? From before the foundation of the world, God decreed this, this, this great love story of redemption through his son. And he told it in many ways through the Old Testament, and he accomplished it in his suffering servant, that is Christ. Right? As, as believers, we should be encouraged that, that God accomplishes what he sets out to do. Amen? Right? Psalm 119.89 says, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. His word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Right? This means that God's plan of salvation has been secured for his people. And as believers, we have the opportunity to go out and to herald, it is finished. I don't get gloomy Christians who, who, who think that the world is, 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 out, is, is spinning out of control and, and going to hell in a handbasket. Honestly, it's bad theology. I was, I was reading Psalm 2.8 this week and I was meditating on it. Listen to what it says. It's not up on the screen. Just listen to it. It says, ask of me. It may be on the screen. I guess it is. <laughs> so quick. I changed the... It's such a pro. Um... Psalm 2.8 says this, ask of me, speaking, this is God the Father, right? And I will surely give the nations as your, this is speaking to Christ, your inheritance and the very ends of the earth, your possession. Now, do we really think that Christ came as a man, born as a virgin, he lived a perfect life, faithfully taught people the way to salvation, healed people, raised people from the dead, was crucified according to the foreordained plan of God, was buried, was raised by the power of the Holy Spirit, ascended into heaven, and forgot to ask God the Father for the nations and the earth as his possession. Right? We have to stop living and speaking as if God's plan for our country and our world is not being accomplished. Jesus is king. We're not waiting for him to be king. And our acknowledgement of his kingship doesn't determine whether he's king or not. He is king and the chaos in this world doesn't hinder or change or alter or throw off the plan of our sovereign king. On the contrary, right? God's using the chaos of this world to execute his will that he decreed before the foundation of the earth. So Christians shouldn't be uncertain. Christians shouldn't be gloomy. We should have confidence that because God's character is unchanging, his word is unchanging. Right, I love Malachi 3.6. I know that's not on the screen because I didn't put it in the notes. <laughs> right? I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. 
That's the practical implication of serving a God who doesn't change. We can have confidence in our salvation. So Christ has sanctified his church once and for all, and because of that, our hearts can be engaged and consumed for the glory of God. So what are the, what are the implications of a, a life consumed with a passion for the glory of God because the, the Holy Spirit has regenerated our hearts? Verse 13, Therefore let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. If you're taking notes, we can suffer and endure because Christ suffered and endured. We can suffer and endure because Christ suffered and endured. The Hebraic audience needed to hear this, didn't they? The, the, the author of Hebrews is ministering to them right where they are. He knows their struggles. He knows them intimately, and he's speaking to them specifically to edify them to not give up. Many of you in this room are suffering at no fault of your own. Cancer, the loss of someone close to you, an abusive relationship, an empty bank account, a, a strained relationship because of your commitment to Christ, a commitment to a life of celibacy for the, the glory of God that leaves you feeling lonely at times, a lost job, a disability. For children and teenagers in the room this morning, pursuing Christ can, can lead you to feel isolated and, and, and misunderstood. Right? It, can, it can cost you friendships that can, can lead you to much heartache. And all these things can lead you to question your faith. All these things could lead you to question the goodness of God. Right? All these things could lead you to question whether or not you're a child of God. And this morning, the Holy Spirit, through His Word, is ministering to you as He did the Hebraic church. He's pointing you to Christ, who has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Right? Hebrews 4.15. The Word reminds us that God's, it reminds God's suffering church that, that for our sake, He, God, made him Christ to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus endured the worst suffering of all. Every single sin his church would ever commit was laid on him, the sinless. And God the Father poured every ounce of his wrath out on his son so that it didn't have to be poured out on you and on me. My brothers and sisters who are suffering this morning, look to Christ. Look to Christ. Go outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. And because we look to Christ, we can, by the power of the Holy Spirit, seek the city that is to come. Verse 14 says, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. My whole being aches for this day, longs for this day. 
This is, this is the city where, where people are in awe and consumed by the glory of, of God and the, the, the supremacy of Christ over all things. I think this is what the Apostle Paul was talking about in Romans 8. When he says this, for I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what he sees? But we hope. For what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. There's a musician I love to listen to named Andrew Peterson, and, and he sings about this city a lot, and, and I think that's why I like his music so much. Uh, but listen, I just wanted to read you a couple of selected verses from his, a couple of his songs. This is one of his songs. It says, As the rain and the snow fall down from the sky, and they don't return, but they water the earth and they bring forth life, giving seed to the sower, bread for the hunger. So shall the word of the Lord be with a sound like thunder. And it will not return. It will not return void. We shall be led in peace and go out with joy. And the hills before us will raise their voices and the trees of the field will clap their hands as the land rejoices. And instead of the thorn now, the cypress towers, and instead of the briar, the myrtle blooms with a thousand flowers. And it will make a name, make a name for our God, a sign everlasting that will never be cut off. As the earth brings forth sprouts from the seed, what is sown in the garden grows into a mighty tree. So the Lord plants justice, justice and praise to rise before the nations to the end of days. And another verse he's written in a song says, and when the river's in flood, with all the sorrow that you feel, we've got just the song you need, I think you know it. It's a song that came before us. It will be here when we're gone. Sometimes I think I hear it drifting on the wind. And it tells me there's a city where the band plays on and on and everyone is gonna sing the last amen. Oh, I love that city where everybody's got a song. Everybody's got a song, and oh, it sounds so pretty when everybody sings along. And more than a songwriter, the Apostle John on the, the island of Patmos penned these words. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And he will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. 
Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So the author of Hebrews has communicated several things to us about the gospel. Although the gospel cost us everything, it cost us nothing. The message of the gospel is narrow. And the suffering of Christ has sanctified Christians once and for all. And the author of Hebrews has comforted us in our trials and our tribulations by reminding us of a couple of things. We can suffer and endure because Christ suffered and endured. And we're to seek the city that is to come. So where does that leave us in the here and now? Right? How does the application of this, this passage manifest itself in our behavior today as Christians? The final thing I want you to see, and I'll close out this morning. Praise God and give freely because God through Christ has given us much. Verses 15 through 16. Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. I love that we're concluding with this thought this morning because we don't even have to build a case for it, do we? The scriptures have clearly communicated how richly blessed we are in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? One of my favorite commentators of scriptures, named Matthew Henry, says this about this particular passage. Says Christ has offered the great sacrifice of atonement. Ours are only the sacrifices of acknowledgement. And they are their sacrifice of praise to God, which we should offer up to God continually. In this are included all adoration and prayer, as well as thanksgiving. This is the fruit of our lips. We must speak forth the praises of God, and this must be offered only to God, not to angels, nor saints, nor any creature, but to the name of God alone. And it must be by Christ in a dependence upon his meritorious satisfaction and intercession. And then number two, the sacrifice of charity. We must, according to our power, communicate to the necessities of the souls and the bodies of men, not contenting ourselves to offer the sacrifices of our lips, mere words, but the sacrifice of good deeds. And these we must lay down upon this altar, not depending upon the merit of our good deeds, but of our great high priest. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for the gospel. Lord, the, the gospel is so evident in, in these just this brief six verses. So I pray that that message would weigh heavy on us, Lord, so that we can live freely. And we can lift our eyes to the city that is to come. Lord, we can endure for your glory because Christ endured the ultimate sacrifice. 
So thank you for your word and thank you for our confidence in it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.